Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Medicine, the community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMedicine.com. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, we know you are with us. Oh, Lord, make your word sharp to us this morning. Make it like that uh, passage in Jeremiah where it's a hammer that can break rock into pieces, Lord, like fire. Help us to know how sacred this thing is that we're doing right now by coming under your powerful living word. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing? Um, have you ever been in a fellowship or a group of people, maybe a group of friends or a community that was, you just kind of felt like the stars were aligning? It's like all the right people are in the right place at the right time, and it's wonderful. But then you feel it threatened. So maybe disagreement between two people, maybe one time after like a bunch of awesome times, you're driving home and you're like, what did they mean by that? How could they say that? Was that aimed at me? Maybe there was some situation that happened outside of your community, but it pitted people in your community on the divide of two different sides. If you've had that happen, which I imagine you have because you're a human being, do you remember what it was like to fear the loss of a precious season of community? Feel like it cracking? If you lost it, do you remember lamenting it? Do you remember the deep sadness of the loss of a community fellowship. There's this beautiful novel called Crossing to Safety, which I know some of you have read because it's about Madison. Um, but it's a story about the friendship between two couples. And in this book, the, the novelist paints this beautiful picture of their friendship, and he paints it like a paradise. It's like, why are we so lucky to have this amazing season of friendship? But then the narrator says in the book, quote, no Eden is valid without a snake unquote. And then you start seeing chinks in their relationship. You start seeing them being pulled apart, and it's this deep tragedy. We've been studying uh, the life of the church, the first church in the book of Acts. And so far, it's been this beautiful picture of the church, the gospel moving forward, and wherever it goes, it brings people together. It's this insane thing. It's countercultural. Uh, people are coming together across social and racial and ethnic divisions it's just steamrolling through barriers, and people are coming together all over the place. Um, if you were here last week, we studied this chapter in the, this passage in Acts 11, which is about the church in Antioch, which is this hip Gentile urban church, and the church in Jerusalem, which is this old stalwart Jewish Christian church, and they come together. They love one another. They send money to each other. They send people. It's countercultural. It's radical. But Acts 15 uh, this story that Robert read, which was really long, so well done, Robert. It's a story of a snake in the garden. It's the same two churches, Antioch and Jerusalem, except their unity is threatened. Verse 1, if you want to go there. I'm going to preach on verse 1 for like the majority of this sermon. It says this, knowing that context, again, if you weren't here before, these two churches were such wonderful, unified friends. They loved each other. Verse 1, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, this is in Antioch, 
Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's a big deal because it means Jewish Christians were coming to these Gentile Christians and saying, you have to become more Jewish to be a Christian. And when they did that, all of the old ethnic racial tensions, all of the old baggage was just completely stirred up again and brought to the fore. This sounds like a downer, like, oh, this is a huge bummer of a sermon. And in some ways, it's a bummer before it gets better. But I love this story because it's realistic. This happens. Amen? This happens. I also love it because the church works through it and they stay together. So that's something that we want to learn how they do, right? We want to learn how do we fight for it. So two things I I just want to organize our thoughts around this passage. One how church unity is attacked. And number two, how church unity is fought for. So how is it attacked? How is it fought for? First, we need to begin by looking long and hard at the snake. The unity of the church is first attacked in a big way. And I think it's interesting that it's the most beautiful, countercultural, growing part of the church that's attacked, not just some random trivial part of it. If you think about it, one of the major miracles, if you know the story of the early church, is that it crossed the Jew-Gentile divide. It brought these people together. That is one of the major victories as you're reading the book of Acts. And guess where the attack is? Right there. Right where it was most beautiful. When everything's humming, the snake comes to steal that gospel victory. So listen. To be the church is to be called to radical unity, and it is also to experience it being attacked all the time. It's not if our unity will be attacked, it's when our unity is attacked. Every time the people of God have come together, this has happened. The snake has attacked unity. Think about Adam and Eve. God created Adam and Eve to be one, to be unified with each other, to be in harmony with creation, to be in harmony with God, to know him. And what do the snake's lies and sin do? They separate everything, right? Pits Adam and Eve against each other, separates them from God, creates this disharmony between them and creation. If you know the Old Testament, one of the great characters in the Old Testament is King David. And the highlight, one of the greatest moments of the Old Testament narrative is when he's on the throne and all of Israel is in God's place and they're all unified and they all come together and it's like, yes, it's perfect. And then guess what happens? His sons start fighting each other, and literally, the kingdom is cut in half. It's an utter tragedy, and it's the same for us. Again, I talked about this before, but I imagine at some point, if you're visiting and you're new to church, you've probably experienced this in other communities that you've been in, but if you have been in a church, you have driven home, and you have sensed the snake. You've felt a force at work in your community trying to pull you apart. Amen? You guys have sensed that? Why is that? Why is unity always attacked? I asked this question a lot this week. It's attacked because the unity of the church is a threat. Church unity is a threat to evil, to darkness, to sin, everywhere. We talked a couple weeks ago about how Jesus says the church has been victoriously called to move against evil and darkness everywhere. Remember, Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Hallelujah. He's coming for it. The church is going to barge it down. 
So we're not just a bunch of folks hanging out. We've been called together for the purpose of raging against what I love is in our baptismal vows, everything that corrupts and destroys the creatures of God. That is what we have been called to go against. Isn't that amazing? But that work hinges upon our unity. We're one body with many parts. So for in order for us to do that, we have to be unified. Jesus actually talks about this in his high priestly prayer, uh, which is in John 17, and he's praying all about unity. And he says, he prays that the church, all of us, might be one so that the world may know that the Father loves them. Let me see if I can illustrate this with an analogy from the NBA. And if you could care less about basketball, I'll do my best to make this accessible to you, okay? Uh, in the offseason of the NBA, they trade players between a bunch of different teams. And LeBron James, who's one of the greatest players ever, plays for the Los Angeles Lakers. And another guy named Anthony Davis, who's a really, really good basketball player, was traded to the Lakers. And when that happened this summer, everybody was like, oh my gosh, they're going to be so good because LeBron and Anthony Davis are going to play together. It's a big deal. If you care about sports, it was like, wow, that's a, this is a big day. But then, for a couple weeks, there was a headline that another guy named Kawhi Leonard, who's really, really good, maybe the best in the NBA, was going to be also traded to the Lakers to play with Anthony Davis and LeBron. We tracking? And when that happened, people who care about the NBA, I was with my brother when this happened, and we were freaking out. We just started fainting everywhere, because if like, those three guys played together, the NBA wouldn't even be fun to watch. It would be like a varsity team playing a middle school team, okay? So all the other teams could do was hope that those dudes didn't come together and play on the same team. There's my ridiculous analogy, but it is the same as the church, okay? When God's people unite, it's powerful. Evil shudders. Our world is so polarized, right? I bet if you asked anybody on any political divide and situation, what's a huge problem with our, our country is that we're divided. Do you realize that that is a huge win for the enemy? And guess who has been given the charge to break down those barriers? The church. The church has the power to do that. That is our calling. So when we're unified, we get attacked because our common love and our bond of peace is a weapon. Isn't that amazing? I love uh, folk music, and I always loved Woody Guthrie as an old famous folk musician, and some of you might know this, but on his acoustic guitar, it says, this machine kills fascists, which I always thought was hilarious, because I'm thinking of like Panzer tanks and Woody Guthrie playing guitar. But he's like, this is a machine. Unity, brothers and sisters, our bond of peace in Jesus Christ is a weapon. It's powerful. Opposing forces do not want that to happen. How is it attacked? If that's why it's attacked, how is it attacked? 99% of the time, there are lots of other situations, but most often, it's done by somebody coming in and twisting doctrine and sowing division. So in other words, the enemy is going to try to compromise the gospel, and he's going to try to make some personal situation where I don't like you and you don't like me and we fight about it. Let's think about doctrine first, because that's exactly what happens in our story. Verse 1 again. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching. They didn't vandalize the church, right? They didn't, like, picket outside the church. Could have done all kinds of different stuff. They were teaching. And they were teaching, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. And if you're not too familiar with the Bible... 
that sounds like religious nitpickiness and like some weird argument, um, but it's actually a really big deal because it puts the, the doctrine of Christian salvation on the line. They're basically saying you're not saved by just grace through faith in Jesus. You've got to do some other things in order to be saved, which, by the way, is an arrow meant to weaken what they had been preaching, which is that all people in Jesus are equal and saved in Jesus Christ. Now, why would the enemy want to attack doctrine? It's kind of the next question to follow. And I think it's because the truth of the good news of Jesus is the basis of our unity. So if you think about it, we're not unified Christians globally and historically because we look the same, right? Because we don't. Our church doesn't even look the same. Not because we're politically the same. We're a global historic church. So that means it's literally impossible. There's no way we could be politically all the same from different countries and tribes and tongues throughout history. We're also not unified by performance. That's what we call legalism, when there's a bunch of people in one place who are like, I've done everything perfectly. That's not what unifies us. No, what unifies us throughout history? It's the fact that across time, throughout history and space, all over the world, we all confess the same apostolic faith revealed in Jesus Christ, passed down to the apostles, handed over to the church. One Lord, Jesus Christ, who died and rose again for our salvation to bring us to one Father through one Spirit, who's established one church and one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and there is salvation, Peter says in Acts, and no other name. So that's the starting point and the foundation of all our unity. There are many cultures, there are many denominations, but there's one gospel. Hallelujah. Um, I preached on the story of a guy named Cornelius in Acts the other week. And my parents do mission work, and they happen to be in the highlands of Papua New Guinea. They're pretty crazy. And technology is crazy that I could talk to them. And they told me right after I'd preached on it that they had just met a guy in the highlands of Papua New Guinea named Cornelius who came to believe in Jesus and changed his name to Cornelius. I just melted. Guess what? Me and Cornelius are unified. And we are not, I don't even know the guy. But what makes me and him one? Nothing else but the fact that he and I both believe and have confessed Jesus is Lord. I was a sinner, but I'm saved by him. And that makes me closer to Cornelius than most people on my street. So don't you see why the, the enemy would want to distort, twist, divide, or change that? Listen to Paul. This is, he's talking to a church that's, that's fighting for this unity in the church, okay? But he brings all this together. This is in 2 Corinthians. I find this fascinating how similar it is. I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you received a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. You see how sneaky that is? There was a snake that came into their community preaching a gospel, scare quotes intended, about Jesus that had to do with the reception of a spirit, but it wasn't the real one. It was a counterfeit. And if the gospel's compromised, unity is compromised. Again, the thing that would divide me and Cornelius, who lives in the highlands of Papua New Guinea, and probably will never meet me or me him in this life. 
If either of us can switch or we break from the apostolic faith, then we're divided. We're not united anymore. Do you guys see that? So the doctrine of the church is always attacked, and it leads in turn to the second way, which unity is always attacked, and that is in personal division. Like I said before, this thing that they were doing in Acts 15 reignited old cultural racial division. It threw up this animosity, and sometimes the enemy will do that. He'll bring a a situation or a divide or an argument in culture, and he'll carry it into the church and make it feel insurmountable for us to deal with. But it can also be with smaller things. Uh, It could be an offhand comment. It could be a preference. It could be a leadership decision you disagree with. It could be like a dinner conversation gone wrong. Anything that can happen and grow and become a personal division. So the church is always going to be attacked because it's a threat to darkness. And that's typically done through twisting doctrine, doctrine and sowing division between God's people. Now, so far, this is still a downer sermon. But this is so important. This is so important. One of the things that we prayed for, um, if you're visiting this morning, we have been a church for like nine months. Um, So we're a new church and we're growing. Um, And one of the things we prayed for before we ever met on Sunday mornings or anything was for unity, right? Because that's how this works. That's how the kingdom of God goes forward is if we love one another in a radical, radical way. So we ask God to protect it, shore us up, catch the foxes in our vineyard. And one of the amens I'm most thankful for after almost a year of church is he's done that. Praise God. Can I get an amen from God's people? By and large, we have maintained the unity of peace. And that's our weapon. But we need to drink from this passage. And I just want us to see this and swallow it. Because we refuse, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, to be ignorant of the enemy's designs or to be outwitted by what he might try to do. Because one day, if it hasn't already happened, you will sense a snake. It's going to happen. You'll feel something trying to rip us apart. And in that day, I want us to remember this passage and think, this doesn't catch me off guard at all. Our unity is the most beautiful part about our church, and I know the enemy is going to try to rip it. So that leads to our second question. We know it's worth fighting for. How do we fight for it? How do you fight it? In that moment when you're driving home and you're like, what did he mean by that? I don't, I don't know if I agree with that. Personal division, whatever it is, what, what tools do we have to fight it? That's the question. Not if there will be a snake, but how you defeat it when it arises. Um, and first off, I think it's necessary to emphasize, just again, that we fight for it. We work hard at it. We put energy and time into maintaining our unity in Jesus for the sake of the world. Um, This passage is super long, and we're going to get into a little bit what they did. But, I mean, they stopped everything they were doing, and they put months and months into solving this problem and maintaining their unity. One of my really close friends was in town this week, and we were chatting about how rare um, our friendship was in both of our lives. We were thinking, why is that? And we realized that's because we fought for it for over a decade. Blood, sweat, tears, countless of hours of being on our knees together in prayer, deep vulnerability, rebuke receiving from back forth to one or the other. And all of that made this beautiful friendship that he and I have. It's the same with the church. If we're not willing to fight for it, we won't experience it. Amen? But how do we fight for it? 
you see, left to our own, our own wisdom and energy, I think unity can sometimes feel impossible. How can we be confident in a battle that seems so fragile sometimes? I think we can fight and we can win. And I love this this week because we know the snake crusher. Jesus is the one, right? Born of Mary, born of Eve, who crushed the snake when he, according to our Eucharistic prayer, what I'll say later on today, trampled hell and Satan under his feet by his crucifixion and resurrection. He is the head of the church. In him, it is held all together, as Colossians says. So how do we fight it? We fight with the words and the love of Jesus through the power of the Spirit. More to the point, we fight twisted doctrine with Jesus' words. We fight personal division and our own capacity for sin with the love of God. And guess who empowers us to do both of those things? The Holy Spirit. It's exactly what happens in Acts 15. We see them bear down and we see them fight for it with the words and love of Jesus. So let's go back to our story. Right now I've only preached on verse one, so don't worry, I'm not gonna go verse by verse through this whole thing. Um, but I do wanna fly over it really quick because um, that might have been a confusing story unless you've really studied this before. These two churches, first of all, Antioch could have been like, again, this is the newer hip Gentile urban church plant, okay? Uh, they could have been like, see, I knew you were religious, picky, stuck-up people. You Jerusalem dudes, I knew it. You were never going to accept us anyway. Gone. Jerusalem could have said, we're never going to budge on this, and yeah, we never liked you anyways. They could have easily just <clears throat> cut off at that point. But no, they don't immediately run to their trenches that were political or social. Do you know that? They run to their common unity in Jesus, and they fight for it together. And the first thing they do is they come around the scriptures. So they come around Jesus' teaching. Just to explain what happens here, Antioch, the church, sends Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem along with others, and they meet in this famous thing called the Jerusalem Council. Peter's also there, and James uh, is one of the guys who gets up later, and some think he was really the leader of that church in Jerusalem. So this is the guy who wrote the, the letter to James, letter of James. And what do they do? It says they come together to discuss the matter, to address this attack on doctrine. They're thinking, this is really changing what we believe about Jesus, if that's true, if you have to do other stuff besides just believing in Jesus. So here's what happens. They talk about it a bunch, and then Peter gets up, and he shares his testimony. Because remember, he was the guy who was able to preach the gospel to Cornelius. So he says, God called me to preach to the Gentiles. This happened. He gave them the Holy Spirit just like us. He made no distinction. I saw it happen with my eyes. I had the vision where God said, don't call anything unclean that God calls clean. And then he stops. And then Paul and Barnabas get up and they share their testimony from all the stuff they'd seen where they've seen the church in Antioch be full of Gentile believers who are fully coming to know the Lord. All the signs and wonders, they confirm it. But that doesn't solve it. I think it's really important because that was just their experience at that point. James then, it says, after there was great silence, which wouldn't you love to have been there, he gets up, and if you're looking at it, in verse 15 says, with this, talking about Peter and Paul's testimony, he says, with this, the words of the prophets agree. And then he quotes the Bible from Amos 9, which is a book in the Old Testament, proving that God had always intended to call the Gentiles by his name and do this, that it was deeply biblical. And after that, they submit to the scriptures together and agree 
It's not necessary for Gentiles to be circumcised or keep the law. We don't have to make them do that. So there was attack on doctrine, and they fought back. They worked really hard by coming together around the Scriptures. That was the basis of their unity, and it's the same for us. Just like me and Cornelius, it's the same for me and you, even though we live in the same city. We come together under that one apostolic faith, and we fight for it. But that wasn't it. It's not just a victory of God's word over false teaching, the Jerusalem Council. You can be extremely doctrinally pure and still be deeply divisive and arrogant. Amen? That is very possible. I love the Jerusalem Council because it's also a picture of radical selfless love. The passion for truth is totally a Jesus thing. If you read anything about Jesus, if you know Jesus, you know Jesus loves being clear on God's word. But another characteristic, characteristic of Jesus is being deeply and radically full of love. And you see that here. It's all over this story, but let me just point out a few things. First of all, they enter into the whole thing with humility and love. Antioch actually submits to the Jerusalem apostles, apostleship leadership, uh, which is a hard thing to do for them, I think, because we find out in this passage the teaching that had come out of Jerusalem was kind of unsettling and hurtful even to them. But they enter into it with humility. Then the whole process where they discuss the scriptures is full of love. They all give each other turns and they wait. Um, we know from the Bible that these guys had actually had some disagreements, Peter and Paul, James. And what do they do? They wait. They hear everybody out. They're working together in love. And then after the decision was made, the church in Jerusalem was overjoyed to send a letter back to Antioch, and they receive it. So we even see a capacity where they're willing to change and be rebuked, which is amazing. And then finally, the last thing, which I think is so cool, the Jerusalem church decides Gentile Christians don't need to do these things. But then did you notice they add, but to not offend certain Jewish Christians, would you be able to respect certain kosher laws? And the Gentile church is like, absolutely. We love to do that. So even then they show compromise. So they entered into it with humility. They processed it with love. They worked it out in love. They were vulnerable enough to listen and receive correction, and they were willing to compromise. Because of that, a guy I've been reading on this this week calls it a victory for truth and love. This whole situation, really important in our history as a church. And it's the same for us. Our church unity with truth and love breathes from both lungs, truth and love. And depending on your personality, you're probably tempted to err in one way. So just to show you my cards, I'm tempted. I'm a truth guy. Whatever Enneagram that is, feel free to label me, whatever you think. But I'm the kind of guy that's like, I don't care if I'm the last person alone on the earth. I will fight for this because it's true and like whatever. And, but some of you probably are like, if there's a snake and there's a disagreement or something, you'd rather just be like, I just, everybody just be kind to each other. I just don't care what you believe. Why can't we just all hang out at the same time? But neither of those are unifying. Amen? It's both lungs. We see both deep passions here, and it's going to be the same for our church unity. Passionate search for truth. They decided this teaching is wrong, and they rejected it from the church. And yet the entire thing was laced with humility and love. Okay. To finish, I know that church unity is really, really hard to talk about. I personally bear scars of church division. 
really, really nasty church division. And again, if you're visiting, you don't need to, to hear about the church to know that what it's like to experience division from people. This happens all over the place. But if you have been in the church, this is a thing. And I wonder if even as I've been preaching, you've been thinking, yeah, I wish my church would have done that. Or like, gosh, we didn't do this. We've all experienced so much in the past, but I want us to have a, a, an espresso shot here of a vision that Jesus really has made it possible and wants his church to be unified. The thing we're meant to do is not to say church unity is not possible. It is. Amen? We really believe that. So here's what I want us to do as a church. And if you're visiting this morning, you need to know that this is something we're passionate about as a church. At Christ Church Madison, we're going to fight for our unity. I want that to be a part of our culture. We're going to work hard at it. We're going to commit ourselves to opening the scriptures, committing ourselves to the apostolic faith that unifies us to Cornelius and to people in the third century. We're going to work at loving one another and submitting to one another, having the mind of Christ who became a servant to serve others. And we're going to do this because our mission depends on it, because we want to batter down the gates of hell. That's the goal. So that's why we're going to work for it. But also let it be known, we have confidence that we can do this, not because we have confidence in ourselves. We can do this because we have confidence in Jesus, the dragon slayer in Revelation, the man who has come to crush the snake, who bled and died for our unity as a people. Amen? So that's why we have confidence in it. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, oh God, we pray that you would protect our unity. Father, help us to lean into Jesus when we sense a snake. Lord, we confess, as we'll all do in a second in our confession of sin, that we have the capacity to divide. We have the capacity to be arrogant and think of ourselves first before we think of others, to be deceived in our own hearts when it comes to your word. But Lord, we pray for your protection and we pray that we would have your mind and your love that would fill us up, unify us, and terrify the darkness in this city because we are a unified, loving people united under Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray, amen.